Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 274, being recorded on Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, we have a lot of favorite things on this podcast, but you know it's even cooler than some fresh Amazon quarterly results, a hot new gadget, or even some exciting Star Wars news? No, what, Scott? A fresh, delicious, hot out of the oven S1. And you know it's better than an S1? I'm guessing two S1s? You are right. That is right. We have, we're very excited this week because not only do we have one S1, but we have two S1s. Uh, so I don't know if that's an S1 squared or S2 or how we, we talk about that. I guess two S1s. And what's really exciting is one of our favorite topics on the show is digitally native vertical brands, also called DNVBs. And we have two of them that filed within a week of each other. So that's pretty exciting. Um, So the two are Warby Parker and Allbirds. And before we do a deep dive into those S1s and highlight some of the things that we found that were interesting for listeners, um, I wanted to give everyone just kind of a reminder of a great way to read an S1. So an S1 is, you know, having, having done a gone public before, it's kind of like a sandwich. So you have three parts. You have this kind of first part where there's all this introductory stuff. Um, and you're kind of like CYAing in that part. And then you get into the delicious sandwich part of the, uh, the, the meat and potatoes of the S1, which is commonly called management discussion and analysis. They call it MDNA. And that's the best part because really management actually writes that. Uh, now they have a lot of guidance from lawyers and investment bankers and PR firms and all this jazz, but it's really most of the times uh, it is the founders, you know, putting pen to paper and describing the business in their words. Then after that, you have the lawyers kick in and then you have a pretty good chunk of risk factors. And then the accountants kick in and you've got your, your, you know, your gap financials and all that stuff. And all that's interesting. But if you're going to, I always start an S1 um, from the middle out. So I like to read that MDNA first because it's the best way to hear about the company from the founders. Um, Now, Warren Buffett and his, uh, and Charlie Munger, they always kind of famously start at the back of the S1 and they like to start at the audited financials and that's kind of how they look at a business. And that's important, but especially for these, I think it's pretty interesting because, you know, it, it, Tells us why did the founders do this DNVB thing? How's it going? How do they think about their business? What are the key metrics they're looking at inside of there? And I think that's particularly relevant for listeners of this show because you can learn a lot. You know, these businesses, maybe they're ahead of you or behind you in your scale, but it, I always learn a ton uh, about you know, what other operators are doing and thinking about their business. And, you know, you pick up a lot of interesting new tidbits. There may be things you like and don't like that you can add to your repertoire. Jason, how do you, how do you peel into a delicious, yummy new S1? Yeah. Well, I mostly take your advice um, that I, I guess two, two alternative views is just skip the S1 entirely and wait for the retail roadshow. And so you can kind of watch a movie instead of have to do all this math and read. 
Yeah. Yeah. I like the retail roadshow too, but sadly it comes weeks after the S1. So yeah. the S1 is like an appetizer before you get to the, the, the movie. Yeah. And I, I may be uh, uniquely odd in this regard, but I do find it amusing and humorous to read the risk factors. I know they have nothing yeah. to do with the business and weren't written by anyone that has anything to do with the business, but I, I feel like they're increasingly more creative in the, the voluminous lick, uh, list of apocalypses that could 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 strike the earth. Um, and I, I want to say, like, of the 171-page Warby Parker S1, about 100 pages of it is the risk factors. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it is fun to read, but you're, and you're taking the right approach at it. What drives me crazy is um, I actually went through and looked at a bunch of the headlines for both these companies. And I would say about a third to 25% of the press um, – that covers these things, you know, to be, and I don't know if this is just lack of understanding or clickbait or some combination of those things, but they always pull out the risk factors. So you'll see, you know, all birds is worried about Nike as a competitor. And, you know, and then you're like, what, what did they read about that? And they've just pulled out a, you know, the competitor list of the risk factors. Yeah. Well, you know, the lawyers are saying, you know, if anyone has ever sold a shoe, put them in the risk factors, you know, it's not like, it's not like the founders in their own words are are staying up late at night worried about Nike. Um, but maybe they are, but yeah, they, prob- uh, they probably most of that should stuff do. is not the founders' words. Yeah. It's, it's lawyers kind of saying, you know, here's a checklist: list everyone that you've ever think you thought you've competed with. You no, know, that's their guidance. So, sure. Yeah, I mean, the list not, of competitors is mostly shocking. It's more the zombie apocalypse that makes me chuckle. Yeah, and now there's all these. Uh, you know, so every time new legislation comes out, you have to add a risk factor. So now it's like, you know, GDPR, cybersecurity. Uh, we use cloud computing that could go down. We, yep. <laughs> it's it's kind of like you have to think of everything that's ever happened and you want to cover it so that if you do get sued, you can say, well, it was we a risk that. factor. You should have known. We warned you. Yeah. Cool. Um, so we've um, flipped a coin and you are going to kick us off with a deep dive into Warby. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll jump right into it. Um, And we'll start with some of the financial metrics. Uh, Per your point, it's pretty interesting because these are private companies. They don't necessarily disclose a lot of this. And so you kind of go from like a pretty vague view of these companies to a pretty detailed view. And if you're some other DMVB uh, that's still private, like there's great benchmarking data in here. Um, So Warby Parker 2020, and this is all complicated because, of course, 2020 was an anomalous year. Uh, 2020 revenue for Warby Parker was just under 400 million in sales, so 393 million. And kind of to give you a progression, they were 272 million in 2018. Then they jumped up to 370 million in 2019, and then you know a much smaller jump up to 393 million in 2020. Um, the more eye popping number is. They have six months of data from 2021, and they're already at 270 million in 2021. So if you kind of compare first six months of this year to first six months of last year, last year they were at 176 million. This year they're at 270. So um, they're they're definitely seeing a nice clip of growth. Um, and obviously, as you grow bigger, you would hope that that scale would help you with profitability. When you're, you know, small and still, you know, in growth mode, it's it's sometimes hard to make a profit. Um, and in in this case, uh, it doesn't appear like they've achieved that escape velocity where they're starting to churn a profit yet. Like the the gross margins are are 
in a reasonable ballpark. They're pretty consistent in the kind of six, 58 to 60% um, range. And, and so they, they are generating net positive EBITDAs, um, but they basically have had a net loss every year except 2019 when they broke even. Um, so uh, what's a little worrisome about that is you know, you like if you look at 2018, you said, hey, they sold 270 uh, million and they lost 22 million on it. In 2019, they sold 370 million and they broke even. Like that's looking like a pretty good trend. That scale is starting to help them with their, their profitability. But then in 2020, where they had a lot of extra costs from COVID, and as we'll talk about in a bit, they're somewhat store dependent, they were even bigger at 393 and uh, they had their biggest loss ever at 55 million. Um, and they're they're doing better this year, but they're not on a path to profitability this year either. So they're the, on the two hundred seventy million they've sold this year. They've lost seven point three million. Um, before I jump further, does any of that financial news sort of surprise you at all, Scott? Or does that? No, I have a different opinion, but we'll oh. we're gonna do a little uh, uh, kind of analysis at the end. Ooh, so I like it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the interesting things, um, well, a, all these digital native brands, you start off by like generating some buzz and selling some stuff, uh, to people that are already friendly to you and it's super easy sales and, and the cost to get those sales is very low, but then pretty quickly, all these companies go into digital advertising mode and they buy ads on Google and buy ads on Facebook to grow quickly. And the first ads they buy are relatively cheap because, that they can, you know, uh, target a very specific audience and there aren't a lot of other people buying that exact same audience. So the, the cost per ad is low. And so the, the customer acquisition costs can be pretty reasonable. But as you get bigger, you have to buy a bigger chunk of audience from Facebook and more people are competing for that same audience. And it's a reverse auction. So you, you have to pay the most to get the ad. And so growing purely on this digital ad business is pretty challenging, particularly when Google and Facebook are so good at optimizing the, the, the maximum cost per ad. And so uh, for almost every DMVB we've ever talked about, they, they have trouble scaling and they almost always implement some new tactics later in their evolution to kind of scale beyond uh, the, the digital ad phase. And so in Warby's Parker's case, they were one of the first retailers to say um, – DMVBs to say, hey, we need to open a bunch of stores and stores can be a really profitable billboard to help uh, dramatically improve our customer acquisition costs. So by 2018, they already had 88 stores. Um, and uh, right now they have 126 or 145 stores. Um, so so they have a reasonable fleet of stores um, that has grown pretty, pretty quickly. Um, obviously, there's a lot of extra costs for running those stores. And obviously, those stores didn't do particularly well in COVID. Um, so uh, some of the interesting things about the stores is that like in 2018, 60% of the revenue came from e-com, 40% uh, uh, of the revenue came from retail, about the same in 2019. But as they jumped up their store counts in 2020, um, that flip-flop. So in 2020, 60% of the revenue came from these retail stores. 40% came from e-com. So the, the stores really are becoming the primary acquisition channel. Um, it's super interesting to look at uh, the, the, the unit economics of a customer, how expensive it is to acquire a customer, 
um, how much money they make on each customer, how sticky each customer is. And different S1s, you know, give g- different granularity. Um, in the case of Orby Parker, they reported a customer acquisition cost. So they said that in 2018, they spent $26 per customer to acquire customers. In 2019, they said they spent $27 to acquire customers. And in 2020, in the pandemic-influenced year, they had to spend more. They spent $40 per customer to acquire customers. Now, put a big asterisk on that. There's some controversy we'll get to in a minute. But um, if you take those numbers on face value, those are pretty darn good customer acquisition costs for this kind of business. Um, Other kind of digitally native vertical brands that have have done S1 have disclosed some kind of eye-wateringly expensive customer acquisition costs. And so famously, like Blue Apron was paying $400 a customer to acquire customers. So so even $40 a customer is pretty reasonable. To kind of put that in perspective, in 2020, they were getting about $218 in sales per customer, which is a little over two orders. Um, so uh, the... the um, the the unit economics are potentially viable, um, except for that SGNA line that, and all the expensive advertising that they're having to do, which is ultimately driving that those those net losses. Um, so uh, those were kind of my big takeaways, and I alluded to a controversy. Um, friend of the show and former uh, guest, uh, Dan McCarthy, who's an assistant professor at Emory and one of the, the true gurus in, in uh, CLV, um, he, he looked at this uh, S1, and at first he's like, wow, that's a really good customer acquisition cost. Uh, they, they should be commended. And then he like started reading the fine print, and they, they've used a novel definition of customer acquisition costs. They've divided all of their expenses by all of their customers. And um, about uh, 60% of their customers are returning customers. So in theory, you you shouldn't be dividing all of your digital marketing by your total number of active customers. You should be dividing it by the new active customers. Um, And that's kind of the traditional definition that Dan and most of the rest of the world use. We don't know what that number is for Warby, but it's probably a lot higher than the the. $40 $40 that Warby disclosed based on this kind of unique definition of customer acquisition costs. Yeah. Did they, did they kind of uh, elaborate on that or, or no, my, they my didn't at all. He's, he just kind of picked it apart and like, there was no, yeah. Uh, like they, like yeah. there, uh, there's not enough data in the S one to try to estimate a, um, uh, a revised customer acquisition cost. Now what Dan has done in the past is he's gone a hold of credit card panel data um, and kind of backed into like customer acquisition costs by looking at the, the, um, the spend uh, from, you know, uh, the, from customers. Uh, I haven't, you know, I don't know that he's done that analysis yet for these guys or, or that he even has access to the data to try, but um, yeah. So at the moment we don't know what their CAC is. I have to be honest, like, even if, you you kind of like double it because you say like oh they should have only been chart uh you know counting all these costs against the the forty percent new customers and not against the hundred percent uh, active customers um you're you're still at like eighty dollars which is expensive you you can't make money spending eighty dollars for a customer that you only sell one hundred and eighty dollars to um but it's still better than a lot of these other companies that we've looked at. 
Yeah, I think the worst is Casper, where the CAC is uh, a good couple hundred dollars higher than the, the mattress. Yeah, and I, I would say, like, uh, these guys have about the most mature store model of any of these companies. Like, Casper's up there, too. Um, but, like, the next company we'll talk about, um, Albers has a lot less stores. Um, so... You know, if if the st- if opening your own stores is the way to lower CAC, then you would expect to see it in Warby Parker's S one. Um, and my my takeaway from this is either you have to get uh, to a much bit, and you're gonna uh, say something in a minute that potentially disagrees, but either Warby Parker's hypothesis is you have to get to a much bigger number to get profitable. Um, and so maybe you know instead of 400 million run rate, I need a billion dollar run rate. Um, or you need an alternative um, uh, customer acquisition strategy beyond your own stores and digital ads, which are the the two tools Warby uses. And I would also argue Warby is about as good as it gets at sort of organic demand generation, and they do they do great like social. They do great like they they do all the other guerrilla marketing tactics. So like. Um, if I would say, you know, if, if they're not um, profitable on 390 million with their type of product, it, it seems hard to imagine that someone else with the same type of product um, is, is going to do much better because they seem like a uh, uh, externally, they seem like a darn good executor. Yeah. Isn't um, in the, the eyewear category is dominated by that. What is it? Luxotica. Luxotica. Yeah. And they own like everything, right? So they do, they have, you know, they have the license to almost every frame, like. Yeah. Almost every designer brand you've ever heard of is, a uh, is actually like licensed to Exotica. Um, yeah. And then they own the. And they own a bunch um, of the chains of retail stores, <laughs> yeah. but they also and, do wholesale. So, so Exotica, like both sell all those licensed frames to the, the third parties, um, and they sell through their own stores um, and they sell at a way higher price point than Warby Parker. So they have way more margin. Like, you know, part of the premise of Warby Parker is the eyewear should be affordable. So their average pair of glasses is $95, whereas like the the AOV from Exotica is going to be much higher. Yeah, I do. I'm not a customer, but I knew I do know people that are and they do tend to buy more. I've heard them say, you know, this is anecdotal, but I've heard them say, especially women, they'll say, you know, the prices are low enough. I can buy two or three different pairs that kind of, they, they almost become accessories at that point, which is kind of interesting. So that's what I was hoping to see, right? Like you go, man, if, yeah. a, pair, if a frame costs $500, I can't own that many frames. But if they cost $100, I might have different ones for different outfits, right? Or what, like, um, and, and so, yeah, like, could their average order value be much higher? Um, but on average, they're only selling 2.14 pair of frames per customer. Um, so they're like, again, a, Frame is $95. Their average revenue per order is $184. Um, so they're not like necessarily like seeing a huge... I'm sure there are customers like you described, but they're not. there are apparently are not enough of those customers that that's change, uh, dramatically changing the economics. Also, Warby Parker has kind of expanded to be a vision care company rather than just eyeglasses. So they launched contacts. They have uh, optometrist services in all the stores. And you might go, oh, well, I wonder how those things are contributing. And at the moment, per the S1, they're not. Like the the all the non-glasses products cumulatively are about 1% of revenue and all the professional services are 1% of revenue. So these the, the eyeglasses are 98% of their business. 
Now, maybe that means there's a lot more growth there. Um, but like my, so my overall takeaway, uh, these numbers did not surprise me. Um, in terms of revenue, it was about exactly where I would have expected. Um, I wasn't sure if they would be profitable by now. Um, it wouldn't have surprised me if they were. So it's a little concerning to me that they're, that they're not. Um, again, if, if a ton of this loss in uh, in 2020 is because of the pandemic and they really did break even on 370 and if they find a way to end up profitable in 2021 um on on their biggest revenue year ever um then you know that that probably looks pretty good but i can tell you a ton of people were shocked by these numbers a ton of people thought warby parker was much bigger a lot of people were speculating that they were uh, near or over a billion dollars in annual sales which i did not view as very likely and so i think this is kind of a a glass of cold water in the face of a lot of the dmvb fanboys and d2c fanboys um that like these guys are are basically the poster child for that whole segment. And they're better than most of the other ones. And, you know, even they do not have home run financials. And so, you know, frankly, like this, this bodes poorly for the financials of a lot of other like apparel uh, DMVBs that we haven't seen yet. Got it. Cool. Well, um, I guess my yeah, what do you think? controversial <laughs> take is, when you're, you know, when you talk to these investment bankers, there's all of this data that indicates that you should really focus on growth and not profitability. If you're, if you're, if you're in a category like this, which you know the pitch is, there's this new way to build a brand. It's direct to consumer. It's digitally native. Yeah, we're having some stores. So by focusing on EBITDA, you're essentially saying we, you know, we're making profit and we don't need to. Sp- we don't have anything to spend it in essentially um, because it's just going to kind of move over to your balance sheet, especially when you do an IPO, you're going to load up the balance sheet with presumably at least a hundred million, maybe more. Um, so when you, when you look at the data, especially at this scale, it's much better to lose money or to not get profitable for years because you want to pump all that into growth. So, so, Every dollar you can drive into growth gets a much bigger multiple than a dollar that goes to the bottom line. So, um, yeah, so that's that's why. And then the other challenge is once you're profitable, it's kind of hard to undo it. The, the classic example is Amazon in our retail world. You know, how many times have you and I heard retailers complain that Amazon isn't profitable? This is when they weren't profitable. Today, they erroneously say they're not profitable. Eventually, Amazon got to the point where they they just could not be profitable. Poor babies. <laughs> so, but you know, for a good kind of like I don't know twenty year run there, they weren't profitable. So they were the extreme example of this, and it gave them much more leverage over like a Walmart who had been you know printing EBITDA and everyone got used to it and it got valued off EBITDA. Then you can't go and say there's a new disruptor and hey everyone we're gonna we're going to stop being EBITDA positive and growing EBITDA. And we're going to focus on the top line to, you know, or spend you know, 500 billion on some fulfillment centers. So it, it you know, I think it's appropriate and I'm sure, you know, the risk factors uh, that's going to be probably one of the first ones is we, we don't plan to make money and we may never make money. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so I think it's actually, I would almost expect them to be losing more. Um, 
you know, if I look at kind of 21, so a lot of these S1s, they do a six-month view because they don't want to update it every quarter. It's kind of a pain to update the S1 while you're in process. So they'll do like a six-month view. And I believe their six-month view was $270 million revenue. So that put them at a 540 uh, annualized. Is that what it was? Yeah, the, you're exactly yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And then loss is 20. That's EBITDA loss. Net loss is seven. So losing 14 yeah. on that? That's yeah. Well, the EBITDAs are positive, by the way. Yeah. The, it's only yeah. the net loss that like, so like they have, they yeah. made 20, uh, 20 million EBITDA on 270 mm. million in sales in the first six months of this year. So that's not, yeah, that must be the way there's some accounting. The other thing that's really frustrating is, uh, they have all SGNA below the EBITDA line, which is weird to me, at least I don't like, yeah, that is weird. Um, that's, that's why you got from it this, capitalize it. Yeah. That's why you got get from this positive EBITDA to this negative uh, uh, net loss. Um, yeah. And this is one of the ways Amazon lost money for so long is they would capitalize the leases on, and now it's become an SEC rule. I think um, yeah. this gets kind of to the edge of my accounting knowledge. Yeah. And they didn't, there was not like detailed good. disclosure about the real estate. So like that, that is an interesting question, how they finance these stores and do they own them and all that stuff. But yeah. Yeah. Um, so I would almost say, as a potential investor, I'd rather get to a billion dollars faster and have a negative EBITDA, a light, you know, at, at a 500 million, if they had like a hundred million EBITDA loss, I'd, I'd actually kind of think that's okay, especially if they could grow faster. Yeah. And so I'll just say, I, I generally agree with you and I certainly get the argument about profitability. Um, the, the bigger concern for me is they're an 11 year old company that's executed about as well as you can execute done all the things that the talking heads said are smart to do and they only got to um and with a super compelling value proposition and very high mps scores and they still only got to 390 million so i i like my biggest cautionary um takeaway from this whole thing is it's way harder to get to a billion dollars uh than people realize and none of these companies have done it not one of them have gotten to a billion dollars in run rate unless you call like white claw a digitally native vertical brand um so i i do think scaling is hard and if it's hard for these guys it's going to be a heck of a lot harder for these like you know companies that want to be super capital light and not have stores and and all all of those things. And I, I, well, I, I don't over uh, worry about the profitability. I will tell you the unit economics are mildly concerning. They're making a custom product. Like they have to, you know, uh, make those lenses for each customer. And um, if they're having to spend $80 to acquire a customer, then only half their customers are buying a second time. They're only getting a hundred and or $218 in revenue from each customer. And they have to make a, a custom product in that it just like, um, I'm not saying they can't get to profitability at a billion dollars, but it's it's um it it doesn't look like a home run business. I it, it still could be a a a good investment, right? And I mean, as long as there's someone that's willing to pay more for your stock after you own it, um, I'm not saying the stock won't do well at all, but it doesn't look like a a, a company that's likely to just, you know, generate like obscene free cash flow like uh, Amazon does. Yeah, I bet if you looked at a kind of a store cohort, uh, you'd be happier with the profitability. And, and maybe that was something. Yeah, I would have loved Uber to see Lyft that in S one. And obviously they yeah. didn't put it in there. Yeah. 
you know, and and you know, so they must have been advised that the institutional investors aren't aren't going to be that concerned. That I think I think they're actually close enough when the lines are the lines are converging. Yeah. Um, so you know, you can kind of see a, if you just kind of plot them out, you can see they'll cross and they'll get profitable yep. because they're already at EBITDA positive. So eventually they'll get to that net loss off. Yeah. Um, when the lines are diverging, like a uh, Lyft and Uber, when they went public, they had to spend a lot of time in their S1 talking about, well, we know our lines are diverging, but it's because we're, if you take our cities that are over a year old, they're very profitable. And the reason our losses are growing faster than revenue is because we're opening cities so fast. And that's how investors got comfort in that example. Yeah. And their lines are diverging from 19 to 20. Now they're, they're going to say, well, but that's COVID. Yeah. Yeah. And that's probably true. Yeah. No, I'm sure it is. Yeah. And especially again, because stores. Yeah. Uh, So Scott, what did uh, you learn from the Allbirds S1? Yeah, Allbirds was uh, it was a good read. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was different, you know. So I, I kind of appreciate that. Having read a lot of these, it was less dry of any S one, especially the MDNA section. Was it felt felt like the founders had definitely put their heart and soul into it. I don't know. Have you do you listen to the podcast? How I built this. They oh yeah, a really good episode on there. Um, and you know the thing, another thing I appreciate about Allbirds is there's consistency there. You know, every time you Every time I hear one of the founders, I go in a store, I have an online experience, the packaging, they, they're very purposeful and the brand message is very, very tied in. And until you try to do that, it's hard to appreciate how hard it is to, to execute on that. So um, so, so I, I just really, I felt like that was interesting that, that even the S1 kind of landed on me as if, you know, the same vibe that I got from the store and, and the product and everything. So that, that was really cool and kudos to them on that. Um, probably the most interesting thing about the Allbirds S1 is they try to kind of tilt it and they say, look, we're not going to do an IPO. We're going to do an SPEO. And what they're essentially doing is saying, we want to elevate the discussion and talk a lot about sustainability. Um, and so they call it a sustainable public equity offering, an SPEO. And I'll, I'll get into more of that, but but I wanted to go into some of the numbers first. So on the number side, their 2019 revenue was 193 million, and then in 2020 they did 219 million. So um, so that's 13 percent year over year growth. So so that that was interesting to me. Um, and then they it has accelerated um, from 2020 to 21, looking at the six month period to 27 percent. Um, they unfortunately they're uh, they've got a fair amount of international business, so you've got this kind of you know financial impact of currency conversion. Uh, the FX um, is what they call it. So it's either twenty five or twenty seven, depending on depending on the currency situation. But let, let's call it mid twenties. And um, so so that's interesting. So they've got accelerating revenue growth, which Wall Street loves. They call that ARG ARG. Um, and then they broke out digital and said that it was 89% of their business. And in 2020, that was 194. Um, they do see that going down because part of their use of proceeds is opening a lot more stores. Uh, they have 27 stores as of the IPO. So June, June 20, uh, and then I mean, 21, and then they have, uh, they pretty much say, you know, one of the, we're going to open a lot more stores and it's going to be a big push for us. 
Um, they also are losing money. Uh, they're losing about $40 million a year. So kind of 20% of revenue is being lost, which kind of feels, if you're going to lose money, you might as well lose you know, uh, 20 30 40% uh, of revenue of revenue um, to, to accelerate. Uh, so that felt more in line with kind of what I've seen as a pub, private kind of VC backed company coming into the public markets. A uh, couple of highlights uh, on the other metrics. They talked a lot about how they're, they're nudging gross margins up. They, you know, in 2018 gross margins were at 47% and then moving up to 51% um, and a, a good expansion there on the margin side. That's pretty typical as you scale and you start to nail down with any kind of manufactured product. There's definitely margin benefits of scale, right? Because you're buying more pallets of wool. I don't know what wool comes in. Uh, sheeps of wool. <laughs> and you're getting more, you know, you're you're paying off your fulfillment centers and you're, you're taking a lot of these fixed costs and you're just putting more stuff through them. So on a unit basis, it drives um, an increase, you know, drives down your unit costs, thus driving up your gross margins. Um, they were, they were much more silent on CAC LTV than, than what you saw with Warby. Um, and so some of the data they had was uh, they tracked repeat customers and that number has gone up in 2019. It was 46% of their revenues from repeat customers. And then that was up um, in 2020 to 53%. They last raised a hundred million on 1.7 billion. Uh, and I'll come back to that. And then let's see. The biggest thing about their IPO, I hinted at the top with this SPEO, is they're all about sustainability. And it's pretty interesting because you know some people, they just kind of throw that in there in the hopes that there's, in the public markets, there are increasingly large number of either purposely built vehicles for investors that want to focus on this area, um, or there's... Um, you know, big investors that are moving this way. Um, one of the biggest public investors is called BlackRock, and they run a huge, massive amount of capital, um, most of it in mutual funds, but I think they have some hedge funds and whatnot. And their CEO has basically put a line in the sand and said by, I can't remember the year, but let's call it 2030 or something like that, they are going to shed any investment that doesn't really um, have you know, kind of a framework around sustainability. Um, and, uh, you know, what what people use is this acronym ESG, so environmental, social, and governance. And essentially, everyone wants companies to, to self-report what they want to do across those three dimensions. And even the SEC has started kind of hinting and recommending that companies, that they're going to start doing some things here um, and requiring them in things like S1s. And then the other thing that's really interesting in a public company that I didn't learn until I was kind of deep inside of one, a lot of these mutual funds, so, so you go public and you have this new set of shareholders that are largely, you've got mutual funds, you've got index funds, and you've got hedge funds, um, and then retail, which would be individual people like buying through their Charles Schwab. Well, the mutual funds and the index funds, when you when every year you put out these different things that you want your shareholders to vote on, well, they, they don't like to vote on those things. They like to defer that to a third party. And there's several of these third parties. Um, one's called ISS and the other one's called Glass Lewis or something like that. And these third parties therefore become very powerful because they aggregate a lot of the 
you know, because these decisions are referred to them, they thus aggregate a lot of power from your shareholders. And they are really starting to get um, where they're, they're saying, you know, even that's going to be kind of the first domino to fall, I think, where they're going to say, hey, the recommendations we make on your board and comp and all these things that, that they have to opine on to the to, to the shareholders that have outsourced that to them, they're going to um, really focus in on ESG. So, so, so it's a big movement and there's a lot of, uh, even CNBC runs like a every other day segment on this topic because it's become such a big, big deal. And, you know, I, I actually think it's good. I think, you know, you would, as a, as, you know, public means transparency. And I think companies should be transparent about this stuff. And if, if they say, you know, I don't know, we're, uh, we're a liquor company and we're not really focused on this, that's fine. Um, or if they say we're all birds and this is going to be a huge differentiator for us, that's fine too. It just, you know, at least let, let potential shareholders know where you are on the spectrum of things. Okay. So that's the background. Um, the, so, so these guys say, look, we, we think this is so important. We want to put a stake in the ground and we've come up with 19 criteria that we hope we're going to be the first. We're going to kind of self-rate ourselves against these criteria and they fall against cross kind of effectively two categories for each of the ES and the G, environmental, societal, and governance. Um, so it's things like, you know, they want to be carbon neutral. Um, they're going to, like in the environmental they're going to favor vendors that that kind of have a similar carbon neutrality and sustainability mindset to them. And on the governance side, they're going to have more diversity on their board and those kinds of things. Um, this One of the interesting things they do explicitly state, and this caused a lot of noise on Wall Street, is they when you go public, you get, um, you know, all these people, there's kind of this, this literal, they call it the book. Um, so let's say you're going to sell hundred million worth of shares. You go do your roadshow and then you typically end up with may, way more orders than you have shares. So you'll get 300 million. So one way to, so you have an allocation problem. So one thing you could do is you could just cut everyone back to a third and you can say, well, you wanted 10 million. Now we're going to give you three. And that's how you could jam 300 million of demand into a hundred million dollar opportunity. What these guys have said is, we're actually going to, your allocation is going to depend on where you are as an investor as it relates to ESG. So essentially they're saying, if you're like one of these companies like BlackRock that that is really kind of pushing the foundation there, we may give you your full allocation. But if you're this kind of hedge fund that that doesn't really even have a website and and no statement on this, then you may get no allocation or, or a, a smaller size allocation. So that, that was pretty interesting. That's the first time that's been done. And that, that was kind of... Uh, Pretty interesting on that. Um, someone counted and they actually mentioned sustainability in in the S one over two hundred times, which, which is <laughs> it just shows how important it is to them. And you know, a lot of a lot of companies trod this out, but Allbirds was founded with this, right? The whole idea of Allbirds was, um, you know, could you find sustainable products to make a shoe with? And they started with the wool. Even the sole is made from a plant based material. Um, I forget what it is. I think it's like seashells or something. Do you remember what it is? Uh, I don't. Yeah, but it's not rubber. It, you know, no. it's not a. Um, you know, um, there, there's two types of rubber. There is a plant-based rubber from a rubber tree, but most rubber is obviously from a petroleum base. Um, so the the other thing I thought was interesting is they essentially lay out. Let's see, three, four, five. They have five pillars essentially, and they basically say, "Hey, here's here's our five pillars. We're going to be product innovative platform, purpose driven brand with an inspired voice." 
deep connections with our repeat customers around the globe. So, so global and repeat customers are important to them. Vertical retail distribution strategy, robust infrastructure, creating a platform for scale. And the sequence of those is pretty interesting because, you know, again, the first one is uh, product innovation. And then second one is purpose-driven. And that's where they capture a lot of the, the um, ESG stuff. The, I thought for listeners, uh, this would be the most interesting one is vertical retail distribution strategy. So I just wanted to add one little highlight here. Our digitally led vertical retail distribution strategy combines our digital offerings with our stores so we can meet customers where they are, delivering value and convenience with our stores serving as brand beacons. Our company was born online. From the outset, we developed a direct, convenient digital platform for our customers. We opened our first store in 2017 and have since been expanding, yada, yada, Um so, and then they wrap up and say in 20, as of June 30, we, 2021, we had the ability to reach up to 2.5 billion consumers in 35 countries across our digital and retail platforms. So I thought that was pretty interesting where they're, they're basically saying, you know, this DNVB thing, even though we're at a relatively small scale, we think it's still an important part of our future and, and stores are, are really more of a brand front face to the digital backend. So I thought that was interesting. Let's see. They had some data on repeat analysis, but um, you know, the, those are the highlights. Uh, they, they had this really confusing table where if people bought more then their repeat purchase rate went up, right? I kind of get wrapped up in a chicken and egg thing there because like just by buying more, haven't you already made your repeat purchase go up? Like I couldn't unpack that in my head. I need Dan to figure that one out for me. <laughs> Look at his secret credit card data. Um, so my analysis on this one, so that those are kind of the highlights. My analysis was this one was shockingly smaller than than I would have thought. You know, I I kind of backed into this because I had heard that valuation of 1.6 on their last, they're kind of in this unicorn status. And you hear 1.6 billion and you're like, okay. A lot of these brands, if you look at kind of public comps, you get three to five X. Um, as an e-commerce company. So let's give them a generous valuation of 5X. So they must be three or 400 million. Uh, and then, you know, turns out they're kind of in this lower 200 to 300 million scale. So then I was like, well, they must be growing at a crazy pace because if you were growing at 100%, then you could still get a really nice multiple, um, a supersized multiple like like they must be. That makes the multiple even higher, right? So they're at like a eight times um, multiple. Um, but they're really not. They're growing 25%. So it, it's kind of a bit of a head scratcher for me. Um, and I'm really curious to see how the IPO does because I, I kind of assume I'm not smarter than than all these investors that have looked at this and put this price tag on it. So I, I must be missing something. So, you know, the things I think I may be missing are, you know, there's there's a lot of talk. They've partnered with Adidas. Uh uh, and you know they're definitely going after the running category, and so taking on Nike, if you can build anything that's you know one twentieth of a Nike, that's a big brand. So that could be people could be looking at this and seeing the optionality of that as this could be a, a you know a, a counter to Nike. Um, this ESG piece, it, it could be that there is an, a supply demand imbalance. I think I think this is definitely the case where there's a lot more. ESG aware dollars looking for places to invest than there are places to put them. Um, so that could be a factor. Um, you know, maybe there's some bullish bullishness on the store business where people have done models and they say, well, if they're at 
25 stores and they go to 250, that's going to, the growth is going to accelerate at a tremendous pace. So, you know, I kind of swirl all this around and, you know, it is interesting. So I, then I kind of put myself and say, well, if I was going to compete with Nike, how would you go about that? And Nike doesn't have a lot of weaknesses. And, you know, they're 10 years ago, you and I would have said, well, their weaknesses are not going direct to consumers, but they've, they've largely fixed that. Right. Um, and you've got a lot of, you've got a whole deck on that. That's excellent. Um, so that's not a weakness anymore. Uh, and, but, you know, Nike's weaknesses could be, there is a, you know, and I don't know any facts on this. It's just, there's a lot of noise out there, right. That there's these Chinese labor camps that their products are made in and, you know, these sweatshops and children making the shoes. And then certainly, so there's, there's kind of that, um, you know, that they're kind of unclean sourcing, if you will, um, uh, people claiming it. I have no idea what's going on there. Um, and then, you know, there is an argument to be made that, um, you know, Nike, to my knowledge, hasn't done a lot to say, wow, our products are sustainable in these ways. Um, you know, it just really isn't their thing. So, so it is a clever way to attack Nike. And maybe it's actually a combination of all these things that investors see. And they say, we think this is a pretty clever way to attack Nike. They're going to get some market share because we think it's important to consumers. It's important to us. And they kind of swirl all that together. And, and that's why it gets the bigger multiple. So I'm going to be curious to see how the IPO does to see if, if that multiple holds up or and I, you know, there's definitely something going on there. Or maybe it was just an anomaly in the private market. Yeah. Uh, and in both think? cases, like the the economics of the IPO aren't really revealed yet. Right. Like we're, we're a ways away from from like target prices and like understanding what the valuation is going to be for the IPO. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these guys, they could have a, effectively a down round where they essentially say, you know, yeah. hey, we because want both it. Both have know. raised a lot of money at some like reasonably high valuations. Yeah. And, you know. They probably wouldn't be going public if the bankers weren't telling them they're going to get, you know, a really nice markup, uh, unless there was some desperation reason. And I, I just don't. They're not burning enough capital that I don't think the existing investors couldn't sustain them for years. So, so my bet is the bankers think that they're going to do really well, and and we'll see a big pop. So we'll see. Okay. Cool. Did you have any other thoughts on Alberts? Yeah, well, a few things. So, A, I would say, like, one of the things that's encouraging... So, A, one thing, a few things to remember that are different between these two companies is uh, Allbirds is much younger than Warby Parker. So, I want to say Warby's, like, 11 years old. Allbirds is, like, five years old. So, they're earlier in their evolution. They have 27 stores versus 145 stores. And that's a a huge difference because uh, a big expense in having stores is advertising to get people to your stores and you know beyond the digital advertising which is very expensive per customer like traditional advertising is much less expensive but you have to buy traditional advertising based on a metro area and when you only have 27 stores it means basically you're buying an ad to uh that's getting advertised for a single store whereas when you have 145 stores you can have six stores in a a big metro, and that same ad is driving customers to six stores. So um, my my first thing I would say is it seems like they're committed to a store strategy, but they're early in the phase. Like they could get a nice pop as they open more stores because all of the marketing and advertising that they're already doing spending money on 
will work much harder when they um, get to a little bigger fleet of stores. And uh, the uh, there are economies in scale of running a fleet of stores versus at 27 stores. They're probably pretty inefficient. Um yeah, they talked about how they've had they've invested in some distribution centers into the stores. So they've probably over distribution centered for twenty, you know, yep. five stores. Yeah. Know. So I, I do think the stores thing is encouraging. Um I, I always am uncomfortable on the whole purpose driven thing. Um so because I, I guess I'm of two minds and, and you didn't mention it, but uh I think one of the novel things about them is they're one of the first companies to go public that's a certified B Corp, right? There's several others. Oh, okay. So there's that brand for girls. I'll come to you in it. Okay. Well, it's, I mean, regardless, uh, I, I a hundred percent think as a marketing tactic that you're, you're a hundred percent right. Like there is a cohort of customers that really care, um, about, uh, a variety of these different missions and Nike doesn't particularly appeal to a lot of them. Right. And so kind of, um, uh, providing a viable alternative, uh, you know, is certainly a way to win a, a segment. Uh, I do think they're very credible. Like they've, they've been talking about this, this sustainability purpose since the very beginning, they've invested in it. The shoe is more expensive to make because of some of the sustainability choices that they've made. Um, so it's not just kind of, uh, ecology washing on top of a, you know, a, a, a greedy brand. Um, and I, I, like, I think their claim in their, in their S one is that the, the shoe has a like 30% less, less, um, uh, ecological footprint than a traditional shoe. And I think traditional shoe is codenamed for Nike, by the way. Um, so, so I do think they are, they, they are credible in their purpose driven thing. And there's a, at the moment, there are all these surveys of consumers that, oh, Gen Z is way more purpose driven and, and, uh, uh, way more so than, than older cohorts. They say that, you know, they really care about a brand that aligns with their goals and they care about, uh, the, uh, ecological issues and ethical issues and all of these different things. Um, and it, feels like Allbirds is well positioned to cater to those customers. So superficially you go, Oh, nice. It's a, it's a growing favorable trend and they're a, a strong executor at, at it. Um, and I, I think some of that is legitimate. Uh, but in the back of my head, um, there's this, this famous uh, academic paper from like eight years ago called the myth of the ethical consumer. And basically all young consumers have always said in surveys that they care about uh, these various missions. But when you look at their spending habits, um, their, their convictions are a lot less strong than their stated preferences are. Um, <laughs> and so I do, I worry uh, about completely hanging my hat on uh, consumers doing the right thing when they're, they're, you know, uh, uh, happily buying a lot of Nikes, obviously. Um, I did also think it's interesting. Uh, obviously, the unit economics are wildly different than Warby Parker um, uh, because of the the nature of the product. But uh, they have 3.3 million U.S. consumers. Uh, Warby Parker has 2 million consumers, despite the fact Warby Parker has got this way bigger fleet of stores and has been marketing for six more years. Um, so so they, they are getting decent reach. Both companies disclose their NPS scores, their net promoter score, and and they're both astronomically high. And Allbirds is even higher than Warby Parker, so they they're making their customers happy. 
Um, they're doing well. The one thing that jumped out at me um, as a opportunity is, uh, for Allbirds that that would be harder for Warby Parker is, um, okay, you start out purely online and you're growing through digital ads and then you start opening stores and you invest a bunch in opening your own stores. Um, what other levers could you pull if you need to get your customer acquisition costs down? Um, and it's not obvious to me what the big ones are for, for Warby Parker. Um, a play that some similar companies to Alberts have run is expanding in the wholesale um, once once they sort of uh, reach a plateau. Um, and Alberts absolutely could do that as well. Um, and so, it again, my takeaway from both of these companies is scaling is way harder than the the Twitter DTC universe realizes. Um, they all want to imagine these companies are much bigger than they are because they've raised a bunch of money. Um, it turns out raising a bunch of money doesn't equal winning a bunch of customers. Not saying these two companies can't be wildly successful and win a bunch of customers. I'm just saying it's really hard. It's a huge competitive advantage to be a big company that already has a bunch of customers. Um and it's hard to start a new brand from scratch and catch up. And these both of these are examples of that. Um, and it's going to be really interesting as they keep trying to grow to see what what new things they try to accelerate that growth. Yeah, absolutely. And I was curious, so I just looked it up. Allbirds is an 86 net promotion score and Warby's latest measure is 83. And those are both astronomical. Um, and side note, there's some controversy about how people measure it and the, the inventors of the metric like are kind of annoyed with how everyone's misusing it. Um, so uh, it's, it's not guaranteed that that's perfectly apples to apples, but, but that those numbers kind of fit with the, the cons- consumer sentiment that I've experienced for both brands. Yeah. Yeah. We do a whole show on the purity of net promoter score. Yeah, that, that would be awesome. <laughs> But that and with some attribution, man, that's a party right there. Oh my gosh. Well, cool. Well, it wouldn't be a Jason and Scott show if we didn't have a little bit of Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. That's right. We've got a couple Amazon news items. Um, the one I wanted to chat with you, Jason, is uh, Amazon announced they are partnering with buy now, pay later firm, a firm. So that was uh, an interesting one. Did that take you by surprise? It did. It totally did. Uh, not. It didn't surprise me at all that they're getting into buy now, pay later. It's a huge trend. Um, it and in a way, like I, I knew they didn't have one, but it kind of when I heard it, read it. And I said it to myself out loud. I was kind. It's kind of shocking that they're just now adding it. Now they they have dabbled in the past um, with with much earlier uh, iterations of of these sort of installment plans. Um, but what totally took me by surprise is that they chose a firm. Like a a firm is working with a lot of direct Amazon competitors that aren't going to be happy about this. Uh, I'm I'm thinking of, for example, Walmart. Um, and so I'll be curious to see how that flushes out and if a firm can successfully keep both of those clients happy that would be impressive uh and frankly there's just so much money to be made in this space and at amazon scale i'm somewhat surprised that they didn't do it themselves yeah that, that shocked me too the, the other thing is i've been digging into these being they call them bnpls um and it's really interesting so if you look at a firm klarna and a bunch of these you know what they're finding is the the under 30 year old consumer 
doesn't like the way credit card debt works where you have this pool of um, you know debt that you can pull down and then it accumulates. They much prefer to match it with a purchase and pay off the purchase. Um, and it's it's really interesting to to read about that. And they're, the the both of the firms in their S ones they have a lot of data around this. And, and increasingly, even after they've gone public, there's more data coming out about this trend. So I was I was thinking, you know, why Amazon has they if you're a seller they'll lend you money. You know, they've got their own credit card. There's got to be like one of the larger banks kind of effectively inside of Amazon that doesn't really market itself as a bank because it doesn't want to be regulated like a bank. Uh, and maybe that's part of what what yeah. triggers yeah maybe there's an antitrust it. fear about yeah yeah fair yeah there's an antitrust thing but it is funny you know we've been at this long enough i remember i'm old enough to remember there was this startup called bill me later and they came on the scene and amazon used it and you know loved it and was actually giving them quotes that conversions were up 20 percent and then eBay bought eBay slash PayPal bought Bill Me Later and Amazon ripped them off the site the next night. It was controversial. And we we're all like, holy cow, I can't, you know, I think we were all shocked how quickly Amazon turned that off after seeing his praises. Um, so it is kind of funny to watch now Amazon jump back into it. You know, it's probably been 15 years at this point, uh, back into it and and partner up with the firm. So I almost kind of wondered if maybe there was an investment phase. Well, also, doesn't Shopify own a chunk of a firm? Like, there's there's an alliance there too, which is another. It's, it's unlike Amazon to lay down, you know, kind of have connections into competitors, even one degree away, with a firm in the middle with both Walmart and Shopify. Yeah, it all all and is very strange. You see data at play in this yeah. service, so it mm-hmm. it is it is interesting. Yeah, and Bezos famously, he wouldn't ever, um, you know, he really didn't want to buy any Google ads because he didn't want them to see what they were up to. Yeah. No, I mean, part of me would almost suspect that Amazon is like trying to learn on a firm and that it, it wouldn't be a long-term deal, but I, 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 it's entirely speculation. Yeah. I think both of our spidey senses are tingling on this one and we'll keep an eye on it. Um, and then there was a battle of press releases where Amazon Walmart said, we're hiring 20,000 people. And then Amazon, ha ha, we're hiring 50,000. So that was, that was the other Amazon news I saw. Yeah, I, I saw that too. I got to be honest. To me, those were nothing burgers. It's super complicated. Um, both of those companies hire a ton of seasonal labor, way more than that, right? And side note, like Target's hiring 130,000 people for Christmas. So those numbers just didn't seem that impressive. And if I was uh, if I was Walmart, my press release would have said, hey, we've hired 500,000 people since COVID. <laughs> like that seems, that's true. And that seems a lot more impressive than than the 20,000. Uh, I guess what is interesting in both cases is this is not seasonal labor. These are full-time jobs just dedicated to fulfilling e-commerce orders. So that's kind of interesting. Um and uh, two other uh, tiny pieces of uh, Walmart news um, in the the time that we don't have left. Uh, Walmart did announce um, an enhancement to their advertising ecosystem. So they, they have a thing called Amazon uh, or Walmart Connect. Um, and they they launched a DSP for that um, with a demand side platform. Uh, it's a. Uh, a way to use Walmart data to target segments and buy ads both on Walmart, so walmart.com and in Walmart stores, but also um, across the the interweb using Walmart's first-party data. And as we talked about in our privacy show, 
um, as it's harder to use Google and uh, Facebook targeting because of all these privacy concerns, um, it it makes sense that that retailers are are trying to maximize the leverage they have with their one P data. Walmart has the most customers, so they have the most one P data, and so that that's kind of an interesting evolution of their ad platform and a and a potential competitive advantage for Walmart. Um, and then uh, another one that's just kind of interesting that I didn't necessarily expect. Walmart launched a new delivery platform, uh, which is uh, delivering goods for other retailers. Uh, so they call it Walmart Go Local, and essentially you can be an independent owner operator in a in a town and sell stuff for home delivery. And Walmart will use their network of owned delivery uh, people and vehicles to pick stuff up from your bakery and drive them to a customer for a fee. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. I don't know if I want my bakery to be delivered by Walmart. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a number of issues. It, it just, to me, it's interesting because obviously Walmart used to be a pure retailer. Uh, you know, you're, you're seeing them lean into a lot of services. They, uh, it was a few weeks ago, but they announced this deal with, with, uh, Adobe where they're, they're, they're selling software to Adobe. Um, and now they're selling delivery services to, you know, main street when, you know, you, it used to be the narrative was that Walmart was putting main street out of business. So it just, it's interesting to see the evolution of Walmart. Yeah. I've, uh, whenever Walmart talks about some services, they show kind of a low Walmart delivery vehicle that looks a lot like an Amazon prime van. Yeah. They have a lot of different, uh, they have kind of a, a patchwork fleet of delivery services and some of them use different vehicles, but you, you may be more expert in the, the Walmart delivery fleet than I am. I just see this picture and it, uh, I think a lot about vans every day and it, it resonates I know. with me. Every time I see some new van with some funky company, I send you a picture and you're like, oh yeah, that's old news. <laughs> but I appreciate it. Thanks for looking out for me. Well, we are out of time and, um, you know, one of the topics we wanted to cover, but with all the juicy IPO news didn't get to this time, but we'll dedicate next show to it is there is a lot coming up where we're kind of coming into we're at the past the halfway point of Q3 and all eyes will turn to Q4 with the holiday season. It's going to be really unique this year because we've got the COVID thing. We've got the Delta variant. We've got all kinds of crazy weather going on with hurricanes. Um, so as a retailer, it, it's a really wacky time. And one of the things we want to talk about next show is ship again. So we coined that here on the show last year and turned out to be uh, probably bigger than even we anticipated what's going on with that in 2021. I spent a lot of time thinking about Van again. There's also Chip again, um, so which which caused Van again. So <laughs> we'll want to talk about all the Agedens that that we're seeing out there, um, and then also you know there's a lot of interesting things going on in the supply chain. We've been uh, you know the team here at the Jason and Scott Show and our mini analysts have been listening in to the quarterly results and and talking to retailers about this, and we have a lot of information to share on that kind of tee up what we think the holiday is going to look like from, from those angles. Wow. That sounds like an awesome show. I can't wait to hear it. I know. I cannot wait for us to make it. <laughs> uh, well, Scott, it's happened again. We've uh, totally used up uh, our allotted time. As always, if this was valuable, we sure would appreciate that five-star review on iTunes. It only takes a second. It's easier than ever before to leave it. Jump over there, give us a review, and uh, make sure you're subscribed to get that next podcast, uh, Scott teased. 
Absolutely. Thanks, everyone. And until next time, happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 